Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. This is episode 13. So this is our last episode of what has been a crazy whirlwind year. I think everybody's eagerly awaiting the clock striking midnight this year and uh, getting a fresh start for 2021. So let's talk about that fresh start for a minute. The time-honored tradition of the New Year's resolution is upon us. It's time to wake up on January 1st, probably sluggishly, maybe with a hangover, and then tell the first person you see that you're going to lose 10 pounds, or learn to play piano, or earn more money, or whatever it is. Then, by around mid-February, you'll likely be having more cheat days than diet days, or not using the gym membership that you're paying for, and you'll be off to another typical New Year. I want to challenge you to not have another typical New Year. I'd go as far as to say, don't set a New Year's resolution. Don't do it because you're probably going to do it wrong. Here's what I'm going to suggest, and if you've been listening to enough episodes of this show, you might know where this is heading. On New Year's Day, when you wake up and you get ready to proclaim your resolutions to the world with a picture on Instagram, pause for one minute and do this. Ask what the goal of your resolution is. Then ask yourself, what do I need to do to accomplish that goal? Not what is the goal. Let's take losing 10 pounds, for example. If you walk around telling people that you're going to lose 10 pounds and you have not decided how you're going to do that, you're going to be up one pound by February, and then you're probably going to quit because it's, quote, not working. So break it down to actionables. And not just actionables, but realistic actionables that build good habits. Crazy diets are hard to keep long term. So you might drop your 10 pounds, but as soon as you hit your goal, you'll want to bail on that diet and go right back to your old ways. And next thing you know, your 10 pounds will be creeping back on. Try this instead. Your resolution is not to lose 10 pounds. It's to exercise for 20 minutes, three days a week, and eat 100 less calories a day. That's like a handful of chips. So why do this? Well, neither of those things are very difficult. They don't take very much time. They're trackable. And most importantly, they build good habits. Now, I'm not a nutritionist, so I have no idea if you're going to lose 10 pounds doing that. That's just the example that I chose but it will put you in the habit of having a healthier lifestyle. And once those things become second nature and are part of your everyday routine, you can start increasing them to challenge yourself. We've talked about it before. You'll see the compounding effect of these small actions if you can keep them up over time. That's the key here, to find actions that you can commit to that will push you towards your goals. And you'll be building good habits by doing so. The best part about habits is they're easy to keep once they become automatic. 
Now, it's true, habits can be challenging to create, but if you put the work in and can get them to the point of being automatic, you'll be setting yourself up for a trajectory of success. By the way, if these ideas of small actions compounding over time and building good habits is appealing to you, I encourage you to check out two books I've mentioned on this show before, The One Thing by Gary Keller and The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. There are overlaps between those books in that both of them focus on how small focused actions targeted at your goals will ultimately push you way past your goal. So if you want to have a successful New Year's resolution, I suggest you take the resolution that you have in your mind right now and find the next smallest action that you know you can commit to that will drive you toward that goal and make that your resolution instead. Now this ties back to the concept of input and output goals that I discussed in episode 10. So if you haven't heard that, jump back and check that out. It's right in line with this. And finally, one last thought for a successful resolution. I suggest finding a partner who wants to commit to doing this as well. You don't even have to have the same resolution. You just need someone that's willing to commit to something. I guarantee that having someone to check in with who's committed to doing something as well will help you keep yourself accountable for your own actions. Nothing will make you want to keep your commitments more than having to meet with your partner to find out they kept theirs and then having to tell them that you broke yours that week. So we'll leave it there for this week. Short and sweet and to the point. Hone in on your goals, break them down to actions you can commit to, and build momentum as you build good habits. This week's guest is film and TV composer Andrew Johnson. Andrew began his career working at Hans Zimmer Studio Remote Control. While there, he worked for composer James S. Levine on a range of projects, including Glee, American Horror Story, and Major Crimes. He has since moved on to work freelance, continuing to compose for film, television, and commercials. He also writes for several production music libraries and has amassed an impressive 8,000-plus placements doing so. I'm excited to get into the brain of a composer, so welcome to the show, Andrew Johnson. How's it going, Andrew? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being on. How's your day going? Uh, no complaints so far, but nice. the day is young. <laughs> <laughs> it's midday, you know, you're fine. There's still time. Um, dude, I want to know, this is a little bit for me, but I'm sure some of the audience will, uh, will be into it. I want to know what remote control was like. I've never been over there, and I just feel like it's this dope place. Like, what's the vibe in, in that building? It's, um, it's unique. Like, it's definitely got a vibe. And I would compare it in some ways to kind of like a fraternity in that it does very much feel like a club, for good or for bad, almost everyone there happens to be male. And I, I do think that that contributes to this kind of, there's a little sense of hazing that can kind of happen. You know, the young guys, it's, if you're not in there at 11.30 p.m. on a Sunday night, the old joke used to be, well, don't bother showing up on Monday. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're just meant to be working around the clock. But like a fraternity, everyone hangs out together. They have... Um, four or five huge buildings that are mainly studios for music, but they also have a cafeteria. They've got big TV lounges where, you know, like important events like the presidential debates or the election. Like I watched those with Ron Howard, who happened to be working on, I think, Angels and Demons or one of those movies with Hans Zimmer at the time. And I got to overhear a lot of conversations between directors and composers like one night I was just eating alone because I was there all the time <laughs> and I'm eating alone in the cafeteria and Hans Zimmer came in with, uh, I think it's Zack Snyder, the director of Man of Steel. And they were debating a scene and I just 
sat there like a fly on the wall and took in every word of it. Um, and I, I vividly remember this one for, I mean, I hope I don't get in trouble for spilling the beans on this <laughs> stuff, but I, I remember, um, Zach was talking about a scene and Hans just goes, well, I don't have a melody, but I have a note and you know, all you need is a note. And I remember just thinking, what is he talking about? <laughs> but it sounded like really convincing coming from him. Like he was just, I just thought, well, I mean, the guy's got a note. So the rest is just a matter of time. Right. But it was cool being in that environment and seeing how the industry works from a very small level of being an assistant, which is what I was when I, certainly when I began. And then all the way up to, you know, the most anticipated movies in the country, seeing that process. And then, you know, the nitty gritty people coming out with birthday cakes and blowing out candles and leaving at 10 or 11 o'clock at night and every car is still in the parking lot because no one has left for the day. So it was a really cool experience. And it, I think that I'll mention this later in the podcast, working there was probably the most critical thing I did in terms of setting me up uh, for both musical and the professional skills that I needed to to do it on my own. Oh yeah, well, it's that was was that your first job here in Los Angeles? I had done a lot of independent projects, but none of them were were high profile. They were primarily learning experiences up until that point, and then I went from you know doing movies that no one was ever going to see to working on some of the biggest projects or TV shows in the country. And it just kind of happened overnight. And so that's where I really learned the skills as opposed to just kind of seeing how I would do it on my own with a laptop in my bedroom. Oh, yeah. Well, I never, um, I think the real world obviously is a total game changer. Like once you see how people that are operating at that level are using those skills that you have learned or are learning or you think you mastered, you have to step back and you're like, whoa, like I thought I was on my game, but these guys are, are crazy. So that sounds like, um, sounds like the ultimate starting place for, for a film composer. Yeah. I think any type of assistantship is, is really critical, but that one, it's supposedly based on the old European master apprentice model. That's what I was told in many ways that, that just kind of means you get exploited, but, <laughs> uh, but you also do learn and, and I think like being in a position to see it on a daily basis is so different than being in a classroom and hearing about what, how you turn around notes in a timely manner. Like, you know, being there and getting a note from a director at 9 p.m. And just the expectation is that that's going to get done that night. And so I would be, you know, riding my bike in the dark to clear my head along the ocean. And I'd hear the email ding and I just pull off. I'd read the email and go, crap turn around and ride back in and do the note in my cycling clothes, send it off, ride my bike again and get the approval email at midnight and go back in and print it. And there's just something more educational about having to do it time on task and like actually printing the cues and uploading them to a server than there is when there isn't any pressure and you're, you're doing it for yourself or you're doing it for a project that doesn't truly have any deadlines. Um, you know, knowing like yeah. this goes on the air in two days. I have to do this tonight because they have to put it in the project tomorrow and get it mixed. It, it inspires a, a, a different level of creativity than when there are no stakes. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, you said that everybody was there like all the time. 
Does that go down to like the main composers as well, or is it the assistants that are there until God knows when? And uh, as soon as the composers felt like they could get get away and let their assistant, you know, polish off a cue or print some stems or whatever, were they there until like midnight as well? It depended. The assistants were always there. Okay. To the credit of the remote control people, there's they're not morning people. So at least I'm not a morning person, so I, I give them credit for that. So I didn't have to go in until 10 or 10.30 in the morning. But once you were there, it was pretty much until you go to sleep at night, whatever they need, you do. And they are generally in and out. Um, sometimes they're stepping out to go to Warner Brothers to do a spotting session or to hear a mix or to meet with an agent or a producer. Sometimes they're just going home for dinner and, and you stay there. You know, sometimes you're picking up their dry cleaning because they have an event that night, but then they come back in. And so they're, I would say the main composers are there less, but they're there all the time. I don't know how they manage that work-life balance. And I'm not sure I would want to do that for my life, but doing it for a little over two years was invaluable for me. That's great. Well, I guess we should talk about how you got there. Let's do that for just for a minute. What brought you to Los Angeles? So I started playing piano when I was about 13. And what I loved about playing piano was sort of wooing crowds and not necessarily being the greatest pianist in the world, but convincing an audience of average people that I was. So that was like, you know, winning talent shows. And I would go to the, the a big talent show. And instead of playing like a really advanced Rachmaninoff sonata, I would play like a version of Chopsticks that I invented that would end with Jerry Lee Lewis and Great Balls of Fire. And what I realized is that the difference between what your peers think is impressive, like my fellow pianists, and what the audience think is impressive is quite different. Oh, yeah. And that, I think there are a lot of parallels there with like film music, certainly pop music, where if you're trying to show how sophisticated and knowledgeable you are, you might be shutting off potential clients or consumers. But that was kind of the mindset that I had. And so then I went to college with the goal of being a film major. And I wanted to direct films. But I really just kept gravitating towards the music part of the films. And I joined an improv comedy troupe as their piano player. And that, I think, was probably the first big thing for me in terms of, of learning my craft. Because uh, we would perform these hour and a half shows where the audience could give me any genre or any suggestion, and I had to just start playing something. And so they would say, we want space-age techno. And you know, how do you do that on a piano? You have two seconds to decide. Sometimes it doesn't work. But <laughs> when it doesn't work, you have to just kind of sell it for four minutes and act like it does. If they say, we want reggae ragtime, you're just like, what, what, how do I do that? And what that forced me to do is come up with shorthands for like, how do I establish this genre? You know, what, what makes the average person think of ragtime? Is it the boom chuck bass? Is it the syncopation in the right hand? Is it the thirds? Like, and getting kind of a shorthand in my head for every possible musical style I might encounter made it so that when I started doing film scores and someone would say, we want it to sound sad. By that point, I knew like, oh, there's like, funeral march sad but there's also like lifetime movie sad which is probably in a major key there's like depth there's american beauty sad and then there's like you know the end of some tragic movies like 
going through all the variants of each genre and each degree of intensity made it so that when I finally decided to start scoring films, I had a really broad musical vocabulary that I had developed from four years of being in this improv group and trying to learn every style imaginable. And so I was doing a lot of uh, indie films. Uh, I, I took a regular job out of college. I was an admissions officer. So I was like reading applications and working generally a nine to five um, when I could. And then every night I would just compose stuff. And I didn't know all that much about the technology side of music. So my the stuff I wrote sounds awful. I mean, it's just like <laughs> unlistenable. But I was like learning how to use those programs. I was offering to score films for free. And I started to think I was getting better and better. But all of the good directors I worked with, this was in Connecticut, ended up moving to LA. I would establish a, a relationship I would finally find a director. I'd say, this guy, like he gets it. His stuff looks good. The stories are good. We would do one film. It would win some festival. And he'd go, well, that's it. I'm off to LA. Gotta go. One by one. And so I finally just decided that that's probably what I should do. I didn't know much about LA, but I knew that everybody told me that you needed to be here. And I didn't know anyone in the industry. I didn't really, I had no friends or family in LA, but I just thought, well, I guess we'll see what happens. So in uh, 2011, I just decided to move here and had a, a couple old college acquaintances that were doing other things in LA. Like one of them was a cinematographer. One of them is a YouTube star, uh, which is a job, amazingly. <laughs> it and is. Uh, I just got a room with them and spent, I think, the first year in LA. Uh, I've, I had very little to show for musically. But I was, I treated it very much like a job. And so I would get up every morning and I wouldn't get, leave my computer until I had sent out like 50 Craigslist replies and emails for just anything that I thought I could do. They'd say, we need a piano player for an improv comedy group in Hollywood tonight. I'd say, you want me, I'll do it. Uh, we need someone to write a rap beat for $50. Like this is, these are true stories. And I said, sure. And so some guy and his sister came over to my apartment and my studio at the time was a, a MacBook Pro with headphones. I didn't even own speakers. So I would like write something and have to hand him my headphones. <laughs> he'd listen to it and he'd kind of nod, hand it back and I would do stuff. And I think they gave me like $50 for the day. And so I was doing things like that repeatedly and just trying to figure out how do you break in whatever that means. Right. Um, how do I meet someone? How do I get that next step? How do I get a job that actually pays? Eventually, I got into doing YouTube series that I think they were either free or they paid so little it didn't matter. I just kind of treated it as though like I have to act like this is the job that's going to make or break it for me, even when I know it's terrible. And some of them were really bad. Like... You could see the person's like thumb in the camera frame because they didn't know what they were doing. And at one point, I literally pulled an all-nighter because they had some film festival deadline. I stayed up all night. I composed this whole score. I sent it to them. And they said, well, we re-edited the film last night, but your music still works. And I thought, okay. And then they showed me the film and it was just gut-wrenching because <laughs> they had completely recut the film and they just started my music at the exact same spot. 
and then they cut it off earlier and nothing at all lined up whatsoever. It had like my name prominently in the credits. And I thought, my God, if anyone sees this, they're going to think, I don't know how to hit the action. I don't change the, when the scene changes. So those were the types of things I was doing. And I was getting frustrated, um, a little stressed, thinking like, how much longer can I do this? And how much longer should I do this? And then the, I got a phone call from my old job and they wanted me to come back to Connecticut to take a much, much higher profile, much better paying position. And I kind of thought, I know that job. I know I lived in that city for nine years. I really wonder if this is like a sign from the universe that I had a fun year in LA, but it's time to move back. And that was probably the toughest decision I had to make is, do I want to keep making $13,000 a year, which is I think what I made that year? Or do I want to go and have free healthcare, dental care, get a house given to me, be the dean of a college. Like, do I want to do that? But if I do that, that's probably it for life. Like, I'm not coming back to LA again. And I don't know why, but I just decided that I needed to, to say no and stick it out for another year or two. And it just so happened, like, about a month or two after that, I saw a guy at a California pizza kitchen at a restaurant and he was wearing uh, a Yale track shirt, and I ran track for Yale. So I walked over to him, and I said, hey, I don't know you. And we had not overlapped, because he was younger than me, but we both ran on the team together. I introduced myself. I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I work for this director named Roger Corman, who's like the B-movie king, and I'm looking for a composer today. And so I kid you not, like I demoed that night. That was my first movie. I got it. Uh, had a fantastic experience. I had to act like I knew what I was doing and I knew nothing. <laughs> you know, I told you I didn't really know technology. And so it was like a real movie. And so they, they were saying like, do you, do, who are your lawyers? Who's your agent? And I would say, oh, I'll handle all that. And then they said, um, you know, should we come to your studio? Again, my studio was my bedroom. And so I just said, no, no, no I, I spend all my time in there. I would love to get out and I'll bring a thumb drive to you with the scenes on it. So I would do that. And I kept thinking like they weren't going to find me out. And then they finally put me on speakerphone with the sound mixer in Burbank in some studio. And he's like, hey, I just want to talk delivery specs. Uh, how do you deliver? And I just said, you know, however you want. And he goes, <laughs> well, um, you know, are you going to do 44, 48? And I said, let's do both. <laughs> and uh, that was when like, he kind of paused and he's like, no, I'm asking, are you going to do 44 wave or 48 wave? And I said, whichever you want or both. And I could kind of see the directors like looking at each other, like sensing, like maybe this guy's full of it, but I kind of eked through that one somehow. That's amazing. Um, amazingly, I got almost no notes on that movie because it was a dumb comedy. And so all the, the scenes needed to be really on the nose. Like if it's a horror scene, like needed to be like really scary. If it was emotional, it was like, you know, clarinets and strings, like really over the top. And all of my improv piano had like perfectly prepared me to just like hit the nail on the head with no subtlety, but like really just shift genre to genre. Yeah, yeah. So I got through that film. And then from that, I met a guy that introduced me to another guy who introduced me to another guy. And... I was at this third guy's house playing piano for a, a demo track. And he said, you know, you're, you're a really good piano player. Do you want to be 
uh, a studio pianist? Because if so, I know a guy I can introduce you to down the street. And I said, actually, I want to be a film composer. At which point he said, oh, you should have told me that weeks ago. I started a company in Santa Monica with this guy named Hans Zimmer. Do you want me to drive you down there right now and introduce you? And of course I said, sure. And so we just get in his car, drove 15 minutes to remote and walked in and we were in the cafeteria and there was a guy he knew and he goes, hey, I want to introduce you to my friend, Andrew, who's the best pianist I've ever met. And he wants to be a film composer and he's looking for a job. And I hadn't actually said that last part, but, and he goes, are you hiring? And the guy goes, uh, I'm not hiring right now, but I'll, I'll keep him in mind. He goes, well, let's go have an interview. And so I sat down in the guy's office and he introduced himself and he goes, I'm Jimmy. His full name was James Levine. And he's like, what can you do for me? And I basically had to just be honest. And I said, I don't really know the technology, but I'm sure I can learn it. But hopefully I can approach this as somebody that doesn't know how all this works. Maybe I can find some inefficiencies in what you do. I'll work really hard. Like I turned down this big job back home because I really want to do this. So I'll devote myself. And he said, if you work for me, you're pretty much just going to be getting coffee, backing up hard drives, picking up dry cleaning, getting lunch every day and fixing the computer when it breaks. And I, I said, okay, is there any chance that I can write on your shows? And at the time he was doing seven shows simultaneously with one other assistant he said, yeah, if the time arises, but that's not what I'm hiring you for. I'm hiring you to be an assistant. And I said, sure. And then nothing happened. Uh, <laughs> I went home and I just kept waiting and waiting. And about two months later, I just randomly cold called him and he was driving and he goes, oh, hey, yeah, I remember you. Um, I'm not really looking for an assistant, but if I am, I'll let you know. And then five months after that, literally seven months after I met him the first time, I get an email out of the blue. He said, still looking for a job? If so, want to come in and meet tomorrow? So at that point, I had been in LA for a little over a year, about a year and a half. And I went to his studio. I later learned that they had hired four assistants in the interim, Gone which he didn't tell me. And they burned through all of them for various reasons. And he was finally like, what about that one guy? He basically said, do you want to start on Monday? You need to learn all these programs that I didn't know. You need to learn how to do MIDI over LAN and fix machine rooms and figure out how to hook up a TV and... I just said, okay. Uh, so that was how I got my job at remote. And it was me and another assistant who was uh, much younger than me, but he had been there longer. And he kind of supervised me for a couple weeks. And then I was just kind of on my own. And so I had to learn the programs, but I got to watch how the actual post-production process worked of like, when did my boss, Jimmy, get an episode? How did he spot it? What did he look for? How did he actually score an episode of TV? Was it in order? Was it out of order? Did he write a theme and then recycle it six times? Like, I uh, got to see that. Eventually, one day, he just said, if you're feeling motivated and you want to write a cue, go for it. Nice. And so I decided to impress him. And I, tr I tr basically wrote the whole show in over <laughs> a weekend. And he came in and I wish I could say that then I got promoted and he loved me, but he was like kind of annoyed. He goes, you didn't spot it right. Like there are spotting notes for these things. Yours is random. It's, you didn't know what the producers wanted. No, I can't use any of this. And I thought, oh, okay, great. So the point is there were all these moments when I was sure looking back, I would get to tell the story about like, and then I wrote the whole thing over the weekend. And, but it usually didn't work out that way. Right. It was it never just does. this very... 
yeah, and all these, like I sent 50 Craigslist emails a day. And honestly, nothing came of that. I spent a, almost a year doing that and I never got a real job out of that. My real job came from seeing a guy at a restaurant and talking to him and then randomly being at a guy's house and bringing up film composing and being able to go down and meet with that guy that day. And then again, I wish I could say, and then I got hired on the spot, but I didn't. It was seven months after I met him and I got a random email. I could have moved back to Connecticut by that point. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's epic. I mean, uh, yeah, you were, you were relentless. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. There's a million things in there I want to unpack. Um, I want to go I want to go way back to you went to Yale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You studied film, but you were do- just doing music like on your own. Were you analyzing scores in television? Like, how were you teaching yourself film scoring? Just by sitting down and like going through it, analyzing it musically, like watching what they're hitting? Yeah, a lot of it was that I would make, in retrospect, not very good films, but I was making them and realizing how critically important music was. And so I would take soundtracks that I liked and I would just put them up against picture and see like, what happens if I move it 15 seconds later? What happens if uh, I use a completely different piece of music? And so I didn't think that I was analyzing film music. I thought I was trying to make a good film. But in doing so, I was seeing a lot of what a composer sees. Like when I write a scene from scratch now, I have to make all of those decisions very deliberately. Like what do I hit? What emotion? What degree of emotion? When do I shift? But when I started it, it wasn't analytical like that. It was... It's just like, this needs energy. What if I try this rock song? What if I try this music? And seeing what worked and what didn't and why made it so that later when I decided to pursue film scoring, I had kind of inadvertently educated myself on the power of music to shape a scene. And then, of course, I did, I played piano. And so I knew music theory and I had spent so much time with that improv group that if I heard something, I could probably sit down and play it. So like when it came time to me scoring a scene, I could try and channel a score that I liked and I could probably just play it pretty well by myself on the piano. Right. But I wouldn't have known what to play if I hadn't spent a lot of high school and my first year and a half of college trying to be a film director uh, or at least a film studies major is what I began as in seeing like, you know, what happens if I play a scene dry, like with no music? What happens if I just have a beat? What happens if I throw in the soundtrack to Braveheart? Like, let's just see what happens. And trying these different things, well, I think was probably my first real education. I did end up with a music composition degree, but it had absolutely no bearing on my ability as a film composer because it was like, it was concert music is what I was taught. Right. You know, like, 12 tone serialism and European spectralism and stuff that like you would never use in a film or you wouldn't use in most films. Right. Right. 
Uh, let's go back to remote control. You said everybody's there all the time. Did you come up with a lot of people that you ended up working with when you left? What, what were the relationships like with all the assistants? Is there like a camaraderie when you start out over there? Uh, there is. And the reason that I was, I keep using the fraternity, I wasn't in a fraternity, but I guess this is what I imagine a fraternity is like. <laughs> But it's sort of like all the freshmen that are kind of getting hazed, they, they feel some sense of like, we're all in this together. And the assistants surely felt that way. It was sort of like, we all know that on Christmas Eve, something terrible is going to happen and we're all going to be here and it's just going to be us. And as a result, th there was no sense of competition between assistants. They were very willing to help. Like, Someone would come out and say, I, I can't get this computer program keeps breaking down and it won't read the license. And everybody would like jump to help, even though they were busy, because like you knew that was going to be you at midnight, like on your birthday, and you were going to need them to help you back. There was very little discussion of music, to be honest. It, it's a little surprising, but I don't remember. Most people didn't talk about the projects that they were on openly because there were so many top composers there that people were getting hired and fired all the time. And a lot of the times you would hear someone, you would like pick up a, a high profile job and then find out in the lunchroom three weeks later, they'd say, oh yeah, we just got fired from something two weeks ago. And you don't know if you took their project. Obviously, ultimately they'll all find out. Everyone knows the credits, but they're not stealing jobs from one another. But it wasn't openly discussed nearly to the extent that I would have guessed. It was very much like, we're pretty busy and that might be what we're doing. We've got a mix coming up and we got to get synth masters sent over, but they didn't say what for. A lot of it was also that multiple people might be demoing for the same project. So it was just demo season, but you didn't really say what you were demoing for because maybe the person you're talking to is thinks that they're finally going to get a project and this is going to be their additional writing credit and maybe you're trying to get yours and for all you know it's the same show like right. you just don't know um you know you're both submitting your 20 track demos like it, it's just it's unclear so for the most part at least when i was there there was very little discussion about the actual music or the projects you were on there was kind of a mutual respect that you must be pretty good at music to be here and we're not going to talk about it beyond that. But we totally talked about tech stuff, new software, um, how to run a template, how to you know run a Pro Tools sync computer. Like that was most of the discussion. Right. Or just like funny stories about you know their bosses, like you know just embarrassing things that that you could kind of bond over. So it was a close knit group, and then there was kind of like a middle level of not assistance, but what we would call support writers. And a support writer was somebody that didn't have to do any of the tech stuff. They only ghost wrote. And it was kind of known that that's what they did. Whereas assistance, it was very nebulous. Like there were some assistants that just did computer stuff. By the end of my second year, I was mostly writing, but people still just thought I was an assistant. And I would hear other assistants say like, you know, we've been here for two years one of these days, we're going to get to start writing on projects. And I wouldn't tell them that I was writing 15 minutes a week or whatever it was. It wasn't that much, but it felt like a lot to me at the time. Right. And so I wouldn't mention that stuff to them. Just because it was sort of like your boss had his or her system. 
someone else's might be different and it, it was just not discussed right what can we can we go back to that the support writing i know that that's something that happens i mean that even happens in popular music as well uh, how much ghostwriting and support writing is happening in just film and tv in general do people have like end up with large teams or is it like small core groups of people how does that that world work i would say that it doesn't so much depend on the project it depends on the composer and so there's like composer that i'm thinking of who had like a seven to ten person support team and we all kind of thought that was weird because like you don't for to do like one movie a year you don't need like eight people on a movie does it get really tough when you have seven people writing music to keep it in the same vein or is there like strict rules like these are the these are the themes we're using these are the the templates and the instruments that we're using you know, avoid this, avoid that, right? Like this. I mean, you would have to control people in that manner, right? If you've got seven people. Well, yeah. So they're all totally different. And again, it wasn't that widely discussed. The music part, it wasn't something that you talked about. And so there were instances in which I assumed that somebody who had been at remote for many, many years was probably doing a lot of ghostwriting. And then I would realize that they, they weren't. And it would be kind of awkward. And then other people assumed I was doing none and I was ent entirely composing some really big shows and they, did, they had no clue. And so I only heard rumors and stories, but like there were some composers that will just write a suite and they'll write, you know, let's say it's a movie that's going to need maybe two hours of music for a two hour and 20 minute film or something. They might write a 15 minute suite of themes, orchestration, and kind of the vibe, like this is our sensibility. Okay. And just hand that off. And then sort of the way a CEO would supervise managers, which is kind of watch the scenes before they go out to directors and give various notes. My, my boss at the time had a, a much, much less disciplined method. It was sort of like we would get an, a series and he'd like maybe write the opening scene and say, you kind of see where I'm going with it? And you'd say, Sherry, go, cool, then just do your thing. I can't wait to see what you come up with. And then you look at an entirely different scene that has nothing to do with that. And you just, you kind of go, well, I think, what is he getting at? And so at first, most of my stuff was rejected. And like, it was not just rejected. It was like <laughs> really rejected. Um, like some of my favorite lines uh, are, you know, he's just like, I mean, I don't know how you did this. You took my theme, you used my theme, but you somehow made it much, much worse. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what he meant. And then years later, I did, I saved every sequence. I would go back and listen to someone go like, I actually know what he's talking about now. Like I did make it worse, but he, he wasn't shy about telling me. And then as I got to know him better, I started to be like, oh, this is what he's, this is what he's getting at. Like, this is how we score it. We're going to be kind of moody with this one, or we're going to be really minimal here. And so he might do minimal with synth. If I do piano minimal, it's a sensibility, not an instrumentation thing. But my point is, every person is different, but then they usually do the same thing project to project. Like the guy that has a seven-person team is going to do it his way on every project, whether it needs a seven-person team. Got it. My old boss, like, if you kind of got the idea, like he was happy to just let you run with it and say, great, why don't you take all the scenes with this character? And then 
whatever happened, like I would watch an episode and just kind of say like, how many scenes am I going to score? I just did a, a, I just ghost wrote on a, a show this year where I had two of the characters and when then anything that he didn't want to do. So they'd say like, we need like a fake pop song that they can dance to. And he'd go, ah, oh, you can handle that. And then I would go on like splice and download loops and stuff. Cause I'm terrible at that and get like a 20 second sound alike. And that would be that. But it was, it, it, it's entirely dependent on the composer that you work for. And they all have different credit philosophies of like, okay, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be additional music. If you do the following, like we will be co-composers. Right. And the way that a lot of this works in terms of compensation is ghostwriters will get an upfront fee that you just negotiate, like, you know, per episode or per film, everyone's different. And I have no idea what other people get or what they charge. I've never met a composer that will talk about it. What they will talk about is the cue sheet percentage. And that's really where the money is made is like on the back end royalties. So usually it's like, if you write a cue uh, for someone else, a lot of times you'll get 50% of what you wrote because it's their project, but that can be lucrative. Um, Some people will say you get 100% for what you write. Others, like I've, I've done a recent project where anything I touched was 25%, but the difference was that a lot of times I would kind of just take his cue and just like fix the ending. And so I might get 25% of a six minute cue that I really only did 20 seconds on at the end. Okay. And that was just, there were various reasons why that one made sense for that specific project. Interesting. That's so when you're, you're doing the support writing, what's it like when you go out on your own? Is it, uh, cause I would imagine once these guys find their core people that they really know they can trust and can really give a lot of work to, are they really excited when you break out on your own or, or is it a little bittersweet? Do you think for them that they're losing like one of their best guys or cause I'm sure it becomes like a super tight team on, on a lot of these things. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that they're excited. <laughs> it's usually sort of like, uh, I, I, there's, I've never experienced a sense of competition cause I'm certainly not doing the level of profile of projects that would be seen in any way as competing. But a lot of times the way it works is if you ghostwrite for someone for a pretty long time, the unwritten rule is that when they can't do a project for some reason, eventually they'll hand it off to you and it can be a full credit for you. That's generally okay. like, that's how like Hans will do a lot of stuff. Um, is like people that ghost wrote most of his really famous movies are now quote real composers in their own right. But it's because he recommended them He'd say, oh, director that I've worked with eight times, I would love to do your movie, but I can't. However, the guy that you know from helping me on four prior Pirates of the Caribbean movies or whatever, he'll do it and I can vouch for him. Right. So that's what I, that's what I mean about the old European master-apprentice yeah, relationship. Yeah. But it doesn't always work that way. And so there, there are certainly cases where what ends up often happening um, is that the main composer says, sure, I can take that one too. And then they just ask their ghostwriters to write the one that they were working on before while they forge ahead on the new project. I think that one is just as common, unfortunately. Okay. And, and in that kind of a system, it's really hard to break out of a support role because, you know, oh, okay, now I'm writing this show. And then the main composer gets yet another one. And he says, can you do half of the one that I was doing? And I'll pay you way more. 
but now you're doing two shows for no credit and he's got three or four for full credit. Right. So it can become like a snowballing exploitation. <laughs> and that absolutely leads to burnout. And I was on a Zoom call with the composer last night, in fact, who spent nine years at remote. He's just so burned out that he has not worked in four years. And our discussion last night was like, what should he do next? And he's like, I just can't bear the thought of writing another piece of music to picture because for nine years, like he, he didn't take a vacation for like literally that, that happens. Along those lines, if you're, you're writing, whether it's for TV film or production music, you're constantly writing. Like, how do you always have inspiration? Are there days where you're just like, I, I'm going to plow this out in the style of uh, 1M12 and I'm not going to be creatively energized by it at all? Or do you, like, how do you reach down inside at like two o'clock in the morning to blast out that last cue? Uh, honestly, it, it's exactly the same way when I used to play improv piano is the audience makes a suggestion and you don't get to say, I can't come up with it. You come up with something and sometimes it's not very good, but you come up with it. And so if it's midnight, a lot of times you just, you just force yourself to do it. And what you're really forcing isn't creativity, it's decision-making. That like, if something isn't working, I never see it as like, I'm not creative today. I say I'm making bad decisions and I don't know why. And until I can figure out what's not working, there's no point in me sitting here just like spinning my wheels. You know, I'll, I'll write something for a scene and I'll just say like, it doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. I could send this and I'll probably get a note. What will that note be? And what do I have to do to anticipate it? A lot of times it's, it's very simple. You say like, ah, it's too slow. That's the problem. It's 15 beats a minute too slow and, it, and it's, it's slowing the scene down. And you speed it up and all of a sudden you go, got it. Now that I've solved that problem, I can compose the scene. Other times it's because you can't quite put your finger on what the emotion is supposed to be. And you're just like, I'm trying different emotions, but they're not ringing true to the scene and so rather than worry about like, should I do a cello or a violin? Like none of that matters until you know why it's not working. And then eventually you go, oh, it's because this isn't actually a happy scene. He won, but he's feeling sad that he's going to leave his friends now. It's a sad scene. It's bittersweet. And all of a sudden you know what to do. And so I'm not Beethoven trying to write another symphony to break new ground. It's almost like, being a carpenter who has to make a cabinet that fits. And when it doesn't fit, you don't just like randomly keep making the cabinet. <laughs> you say, what isn't fitting? What do I need to do? And when I see composers that are slow, it's usually that they're not making decisions or they're just too afraid. It's not that they can't make them. It's that they're not confident enough to make a decision and to say, got it. It's a sad scene. And that was one real, I mean, I learned so much from that, my old boss, Jimmy, but one of them was, he would say, when I wrote a scene that he didn't like, he never criticized the music ever. It was always the approach. And he'd say like, it's like, you're not saying anything. And he'd go like, dude, have a perspective. Like your job is to tell a story and you're just kind of like floating around in the middle. Like, what are you doing with this music? And if I couldn't tell him, that was a sign of like, oh, because I didn't know. I was just kind of like writing stuff. Whereas if I could say like, I'm pointing out that this thing happened and he thought it was going to be happy and it's not, 
that's where you speed up and find inspiration. I remember we, we scored one of the worst TV shows of all time. Literally, it was the, the worst premieres ever on NBC in, in NBC history. And there was a scene that I scored that I was so proud of. And there's a guy who just accidentally keeps jerking this woman around, but he doesn't mean to. So at the end of the episode, he goes to her apartment and he's in the hall and he's apologizing and she finally accepts his apology. And so I score the scene and it was just like emotional and heartfelt. And you could tell like this guy didn't mean to hurt this woman. And I thought it was great. And Jimmy came in and he just listened and he just go, he listened to like 15 seconds of a two minute cue and he just stopped, hit the space bar and he goes, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, what is the point of the scene? And I was like, well, it, he, he's apologizing. He goes, I know what's happening. Why is this scene here? And I said, well, be, because he didn't mean to, he was, no, you're giving me the plot. What is the story? The story is tension. Is she going to accept the apology? That's all that we're watching here. As the audience, we know what he's done. She doesn't. All we care about is, is she going to accept his apology? So why are you writing emotional music? And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, he's right. And he goes, if you write emotional music, you're leading that she's going to accept the apology and we're going to change the channel. If it's tense, we don't know what's going to happen and we're going to keep watching. That's why the scene is in here. And he just goes like, come on, man, you're better than this. <laughs> and all of a sudden, once he told me it was tension, I went, he's right. And in 45 minutes, I rewrote the cue with this kind of simmering like, oh, what's going to happen? And I didn't even resolve it at the end. And she opens the door and the scene ends. And I just thought like, there, plot versus story and understanding why a scene is there is the only way to know what the music needs to do. That's the reason I tell you that story is because if I can't come up with inspiration at two in the morning, it's because I'm not doing those steps. Right. It's because I can't figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I'm just kind of doing stuff. That's a, uh, that's a really, actually, I would have never thought of that. That's, that's an amazing point. It's so it, to me, what I'm taking away is that it sounds like film scoring is, is artistic in like the creation of the theme in the suite. And then it kind of shifts over to becoming this more like analytical, analytical storytelling and less of like an artistic uh, expression. I mean, it probably still is artistic. Exactly. Are you, do you look at these things like a little bit more left-brained? Like once you know what the theme is, are you switching a little bit more to the analytical side? Yeah, like I would say it's all to some degree analytical. It's like, if you think about a, a screenwriter, again, because I used to want to be a filmmaker, if you think about like a screenwriter, they aren't just writing random dialogue. Uh, well, at least a good one. Right. <laughs> They're saying, why is the character doing this? Is this telling the audience something about the plot? Is it illuminating something about the character? Like every line should have a purpose. And the same is true of the music is, why am I starting the music right now as opposed to in five seconds? Even those little things, I guess there's an artistry in it, but Jimmy taught me all this stuff where I would watch a scene and he, he'd just go like, you're, you're, on, you're too on the beat. And all he would do is shift everything back one second and it would completely change it because the music would change on the character's reaction to what happened rather than what just happened. If somebody says, I love you, I would hit that when I started. And then he would teach me like, no, the character knows that they love that person. The other person doesn't know. So you hit the reaction of the person that just heard it. 
So I guess there's artistry in that, but it's also analytical. It's why am I hitting right here? And so I try and make sure with every decision that I make, if the director ever says, why did you do that? I have a reason. Otherwise, why is that note there? And if I say, even if they just say, why are all these notes here? I say, because it needs energy. I mean, that, that could be the reason. But if that's not the reason, then maybe it doesn't need so many notes. If it's, why did you shift the music there? It's, well, it's to, to tell the audience that they can't trust this person. Maybe the story needs that. Or maybe we shouldn't know that we can't trust this person. But those are the types of decisions that, that supersede the music. You know, if you put Star Wars music on Inception, it doesn't work, even though it's great music. Right. And that's just because it doesn't serve the story. And so that was, I would say that everything leading up to remote control was me learning music. Like, you know, that was me being the carpenter and learning how to make a really good cabinet. But then remote is what taught me to tailor it to very, like really specific, make sure that it fits like a glove and that you can justify everything you do. And then the artistry is in like, how do I make it sound good? Because, you know, you need that. Yeah. But, like, that's all I used to focus on is, like, oh, this cool melody and look at this awesome transposition that I just did. And, like, none of that matters if there's not a reason to transpose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to move forward to life after remote control if, if you're down. Uh, what do you, So you're doing tons of independent work and you're still doing production music. How do you, how do you choose a job? And how do you pitch on a job now? Do you have to pitch on a movie? You have to like do a demo or whatever? Like how, how does that world work when you're trying to land a new movie? It kind of depends on, on the project. Some of them, they want you to actually score a scene. In other cases, they want you to just send, they'll say like, our movie is, is like X, Y, and Z. Do you have tracks that evoke this emotion? And I just, I had so much music at this point that I'll just compile a 20 track SoundCloud playlist and send it to them and just kind of say like, here's some stuff I've done. And then the idea is that they, you know, they kind of see if any of any of that vibe might work for their film and then get back to you. Um, the most recent movie I did was actually from that California pizza kitchen guy who went, he left Roger Corman's and he went on to become a director and he got a project with Netflix and it was a documentary. And he was just like, I, I want to evoke the following moods. So I wrote spec music before he'd done any editing. And I wrote 50 minutes, I think. It, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot, but it didn't really take me that long. I just, because it didn't matter. I just wrote stuff. <laughs> and when you can just write stuff, like, it's, it's not that hard. It's when you have, when it needs to do something specific that it's hard. Right. So I would say like, oh, and here's some ominous sounding music. And here's like some, emo here's like three different ways to, to be emotional. And I sent him all this music and then he tempted his movie with some of it. And then a year, then I didn't get hired for the project. And then a year and a half later, he came back and he said, we're having issues with our composer. Can you come on? Because we've actually started using all that spec music that you wrote and we just want to license it from you or have you compose for us. So I just reopened the original files and conformed and wrote a bunch of music. So my point is, sometimes you demo, sometimes you write spec music and you get the job a year and a half later. <laughs> um, sometimes you come in and, quote, save the day. They say, like, for whatever reason, things aren't working with this current composer. 
can you do a rush job on this? Uh, and usually if that happens, you get like a team, you get like two or three buddies that can really help you crank. Yeah. Another documentary where uh, I wrote a suite, a six minute suite. And I, I'm told that the directors asked three or four people to just write some music. And they sent, it was, they sent a sizzle, which was like a five minute compilation of scenes that hadn't really been edited and said, this is kind of what it's going to be like. Here's two paragraphs on the story. Let's just see what you're inspired to do. So I spent like a day just writing piano music and orchestrating it and sent it. And they put it against picture and liked it. So that's how I got one job. So it, it depends. I wanted to go back. You said you knocked out 50 minutes of music for this documentary. It was no big deal, right? So what, what kind of systems do you have in place that allow you to knock out 50 minutes of music and it not be a big deal? Like, are you, you must have crazy, I know composers have crazy templates and you guys are really good at like playing multiple parts on pianos. Like what's, what's your move? How do you, how is 50 minutes of music? No big deal for you. Well, a lot of it's drones. I mean, a drone, <laughs> come on. <laughs> like, uh, and that's kind of a, that's kind of in vogue these yeah, days. Like it is, you just, it more atmospheric. So, I mean, in 20 minutes, you can write three, three minutes of music if you're just kind of moving. I, I think when I say it's no big deal, I, what I really mean is I didn't have to make any hard decisions. Right. I could just, anything that came to me, I would just keep and say, oh, that, I think that's kind of cool. Or, you know, I wouldn't have written it, but I'm not sure it's right but we'll see what he thinks. And then I would say like, and then how would I do action and just, just come up with some, whatever, you know, like playing improv piano, you just make a decision yeah. and just do it knowing that there are no stakes. Like it's just a demo. If they like one minute out of 10 minutes, you might get hired because that, it doesn't take much. You just need to prove that you're capable of doing the job. And so like, you know, if you're looking at, if you're trying to hire a landscaper and you look through 20 photos of stuff they've done and no, no, and you're like, oh, that's what I want. You don't care that 19 of them weren't what you want. You, you're just like, oh, that guy can do the job. There it is. Right. And so that's why it wasn't difficult. But in terms of templates, some people have crazy templates. I find that if they're too big, it's, it's not that it's overwhelming. It's that I spend too much time figuring out what to do. If I've got 18 long string patches. It's like, oh, do I want the Albion strings? Do I want the Spitfire strings? Do I want the London Air strings? So I just pick one and I say, that's what the long strings are going to sound like in this project. Right. Okay. Um, you know, I make a decision as to why, but then I, but then that's done. I don't revisit it. And then like here, I've got 10 timpanies. Like this is the timpani that I want. It's done. And then you just write. Got it. Done. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's see, this question may have been probably better suited for the beginning, but when you first decided to come to Los Angeles, did you have an idea of what success was for you? Had you defined that or were you just, you said you were sending Craigslist ads to everybody for every gig you, you could, did you have an end goal at the time though? Um, it, I did, but it was, it was not like, it wasn't concrete. It was very abstract. And the abstract goal was instead of my old job working in an office and doing something that I didn't dislike, but I didn't like, if you, if it was a Sunday afternoon and you said, do you want to go and do your day job today? I would have said no. Whereas I always wanted to play piano or write music. And so I always said, you know, success for me was being able to wake up and know that I have to spend my day writing music and I can make enough money 
to justify spending my day that way. I didn't need to be rich. I didn't need to win awards. But I just felt like if I have to have a job, it should be the thing that I want to do anyway. But I, I would say at the most abstract level, I would probably say I, all I knew is I wanted a job that people don't retire from because they like it. And so like, I used to say that as a filmmaker, honestly, I, I would just say like, you know, Martin Scorsese doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do two more movies and then I'm freaking done with no, this. Keep going. He's just like, I'm going to do it as long as I yeah. can. Actors don't just like tend to retire. They retire when they stop getting the parts that excite them. Writers don't just say like, okay, I'm going to do two more books and then I can retire. Like they're doing it because they need to. So I thought whatever I do, I want it to be the kind of job that most people choose not to retire from because it, it's within them. Now, when I moved to LA, it was like, what kind of job is that for me? It's something in music where it's the type of thing that if I had a different job, I would look forward to doing this when that job is done. Um, and so, yeah, more specifically, like now that I've done some of the business, for me, I think it's um, scoring comedies is my favorite thing that I've done, probably because it's closest to my old improv piano. Right. Um, you know, I, I, did, I used to do improv piano concerts where I would get an audience and they would pay and I would have nothing planned. And I would do two hours of improv based on suggestions pulled out of a hat. You know, audience members pick three notes. Someone else picks a key. You give me a composer. You go, okay, A flat, B, C in the key of F and I have to sound like Beethoven. Here we go. And just like do it. That's amazing. And that was like, it was just, well, it's terrifying, but thrilling. And like, <laughs> I like, believe me, you feel alive when you're on stage and you're just like, at any moment I could blow this. That was very, very thrilling, but it was a little too stressful. Like, I don't <laughs> want to do that every day. Whereas scoring comedies is as close as I can get to that without the anxiety because it's like, okay, this needs to be funny. What's the best way to make it funny? Like, should I play it serious? Should I play it comedic? Like a lot of comedy is funnier when you don't play it as comedy. That would be my dream job now is like scoring Glee again, or the show that I just did with Katie Keene on the CW, which I was a ghostwriter on. But like, I, I loved because they might do a, a techno scene that needed to be really funny. And I was like, how do I do like really, you know, on the nose techno music? And like, now it needs to be emotional, but the conversation is, is hilarious. So like, I'm going to score it really sad because that's what makes it funnier. I just find that more stimulating and more versatile than like, I did a crime show for four years where it was a great show, but is the same music every week. You always knew there's going to be a killer. It's going to be dark. Someone's going to be sad. Right it wasn't as stimulating as saying, I have no idea what this next episode is going to ask me to do. Like, oh, I have to learn how to write funk. Okay, let's do it. Like, so that would be my dream job now is to make a living writing comedies. Amazing. Um, I got a couple, a couple questions as we work our way out to the end. Uh, you, I, you were talking about your, your improv piano show. That was just something that you were doing for fun. Do you, do you get a chance or have any interest? I guess you're just buried in, in music to, Compose? Do you write for yourself in something that you call like your your music? Uh, never. <laughs> um, Not once. I mean, well, I scored my wedding. Oh, that's epic! <laughs> and so, well, it was a Halloween wedding, so it was still kind of comedy. <laughs> but yeah, so it was like you know a twenty minute organ fugue when people sat down, and then like the 
there was a zombie attack in the middle of it. So like, how, how do you score that? And like, so I scored my wedding. I have, I have written themes for every family member and, and our rabbit. Like, so I'll do things like that with motif, light motifs for everyone in the family. But no, I never sit down and, and say, what am I feeling? And how do I translate that to music? I, in fact, no composer that I know, at least from remote ever does that. They used to just say like, why would we write until somebody pays us to write? Um, because that's what we do all day. Yeah. And it's just an odd thing. Now, I still enjoy playing piano. I was playing Rachmaninoff and Chopin earlier this morning. Not as well as I'd like, but I was playing them. Whereas I will not, yeah, I won't sit there and compose. Like I, I'll wait till I have a project. And then if I'm feeling something, like it might bleed into that project. But in five years, I've never sat down and said, I'm going to write a piece for me today. Like, I don't even know what it would be. I kind of need someone to tell me. That's now. crazy. I mean, I can uh, see that. I can see that. Um, I mean, I, I used to play music, but I never, I never really create that much anymore. Cause what, I feel like once people, once people get into the world and they, and music becomes their full-time job, that sometimes that passion can like fade out. And I think that's something that maybe kids don't know, like as they're leaving college, that, you know, the thing that they love most, as soon as it becomes their job, they may still love their job, but they might not play guitar every day anymore. And um, it's it's a little unfortunate, but I think it's what happens. But everybody, like you said, you, you are on a path doing a job that you don't want to retire from. And that in itself is like, that should be every musician's goal. I think you sum that up perfectly. I listened to a, an Elton John interview in the last week where I think it was with Howard Stern or something. Someone sent it to me because I love Elton John. And there was a question at the end where Howard Stern goes, so like, what do you play when it's just you at home? And Elton said, I don't have a piano at home. He goes, I have one in a side studio, but why would I ever play piano at home? He goes, do you think somebody that spends their day baking professionally comes home and starts making muffins? He goes, I'll play when it's time to play. And Howard Stern was blown away. And so was I. And then I started going, well, that's kind of me um, yeah. with composing. It just didn't occur to me. I was, I don't know what I thought he did, but I just assumed you would, of course you would want to play. And then once it's framed that way, it's like, yeah, I mean, there is no lack of opportunity to compose. And I, for years, I absolutely did, but I don't know what I would compose anymore. Cause I, I kind of have experimented with every chord progression and voicing and it's like, I, I don't know why I would compose for myself. <laughs> that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, uh, I know bef- before we go, I wanted to talk production music just a little bit because I know that there's a lot of people that want to get into that world and they think that's like a viable thing. Where does that fall into your day? Are you doing it regularly or are you just doing it when someone needs a, a batch of 10 here or there? Like, how did you get into that while, you know, doing your your composing? So I got into that entirely by accident. It was as I was leaving remote that exact like month, they started a new company called Bleeding Fingers, which was in the same building. They kind of, I wouldn't say they tried to hire me, but they were kind of interested in offering. And I would have accepted. I just couldn't stand to go back to that building anymore. Like it was literally the same building. And I just thought I can't quit and then just come to a door across the hallway every single day. Right. I just need something. I need something else. But 
I stayed in touch with them and it kind of led to like a few tracks here, a few tracks there. And at this point, I mean, it says on my ASCAP, but I think I have over 700 library tracks I've written um, since 2014. Most of those were 2014 and 15 when I was writing up to four tracks a day. Okay. And that was pretty much whenever I wasn't on a main project, I would just write library music. That was, again, when I say like, why would I ever write something for myself? That's kind of what I'm getting at is like, well, why wouldn't I just email someone and say, hey, what do you need today? And they'd say, we need two mob tracks. And I'm like, ooh, you like the mafia? Okay, let me see what I can do. And write two things. Like that's more stimulating than like how I feel that morning. That's true. And so I was just cranking. And that was maybe a little OCD, honestly, because like if I ran out of something to do by afternoon and I knew that I didn't have another project in the pipeline for two days, I would not panic, but I would just immediately start emailing everybody saying, do you need anything? What can I do? So my point in saying that is that library or production music can be very worthwhile, but it is a numbers game and you need to do a lot of it before it pays off. Um, I know people that are fantastic composers who have written great tracks and it's just not really doing much for them because they only have 10 or 20. Whereas when you have hundreds, like there's a probably a good statistical probability they're getting used somewhere. It is hard to get into in the sense that there are lots of libraries, but there are only a few of them that are really worthwhile, like financially, because I've given a lot of music that wasn't used to smaller libraries and they, they kind of never amount to anything. Like there have been all sorts of times where I'd say, okay, I'll bounce out stems for these 40 tracks, give them to you free of charge because I don't know what else to do with them. And like you see two placements and you get $10 and you're just like, oh, okay, like I wasted so much time bouncing out stems at my computer for that. And then meanwhile, like if you have a really big library like Extreme, like they have tracks, uh, none of them by me, but they have tracks that have individually made over a million dollars and just like really boring drones that you're just like, are you kidding me? But yes, that can happen. So that's why I say it's a numbers game is because it's really hard to predict. Some of the music I'm most proud of really doesn't get placed very often. And then other stuff that I'm just like, I don't know who's ever going to use this. And it pops up everywhere in every genre. And so you just kind of have to find a library that will actually promote you. Yeah. And that's the hard part. It's so many composers. Because they have plenty of composers and, and they're all really good. And so then you need it to be a genre that works for you. And I think that's another advantage that I had is that I have you know, a lot of composing friends who are great, but some of them are only comfortable in a few genres. And I spent so much time learning every genre that I may not be the best at it, but I can probably do a decent job. So if you need Christmas music, you got it. If you need Halloween music, sure. Mafia music, fine. Whereas if you only have like a couple genres that you do, production music is a little bit harder to make a living in because then you're only competing with people in that Like if you write a pop song, like an emo pop song that's meant to be like the final song in a TV show, they're only going to pick one, if if that. And there's lots of other songs to choose from. Whereas like some of my horror tracks appear in ghost stories, but one of them was used by a wrestler as his main theme on like WWE. You get, they pop up in like crime shows. And so if you're versatile and you write a lot of tracks, it can really pay off. 
Um, but it's hard and it takes a while. I mean, I would say it takes uh, several years. I was told write 40 tracks and then wait three years to see how much that adds up to before you make a decision. A lot of the stuff I wrote in 2014 is what's getting placed like right now. And so it's a long game. It's about numbers. And I think versatility is really useful in, in expanding the breadth of the types of placements you can get. Okay. Well, do you, do you see, um, like indie films and advertisers going to libraries instead of composers? I've had a few composer friends complain, like libraries are just becoming so full of quality music. Like you said, there's a ton of great music that composers are actually losing out. There's less custom music. Are you, do you see that or has that not been an issue for, for you? Oh, that's very true. It is. Um, in fact, I've been on one of my classic stories, uh, 2016, I got hired to do some web series for, it was like a 12 part web series for like the Verizon network. It was called Mrs. Earth. It was very strange, but so I'm at this spotting meeting in Hollywood and they're like, we've only got a couple tracks that we love. So most of our budget is going to licensing these tracks and whatever else is left over, we can pay you. And one of the tracks was my library track that I had written. (laughs) And I was just like, how about this? Don't pay the library, pay me. That's my sequence. I'll go in and I'll change 10 things about it. I'll make it fit better. And you just give me that money. (laughs) But that was like a clap. They were just like, so, you know, nothing we can do. We're set on this library track. And one of the two is mine. So that does happen. But what you're really running up against is the fact that advertisers, especially, it's so easy for them to rifle through 20 tracks in the time that it takes you to write one. So they say like, we want X, Y, and Z. And then while you're busy writing it, they can click through 20 tracks and say, oh, actually, never mind. We want this other thing. And there it is. And it can be ours for 300 bucks and it's done. Yeah. Versus you coming and then they're saying, oh, never mind. We changed your mind. And you're like, okay, give me four more hours to rewrite something. So it, it is definitely, I think, where the industry is headed because there's so much more content that needs composers, so but content. also there's so much more music that can just so easily fill it. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's really good music. Like it's stuff that people spent days crafting when maybe you only have a morning to write two minutes. Yeah. And so they can be more intricate and more nuanced in their sounds. And that's difficult to compete with. Yeah. It's something that somebody mentioned to me and I, I always think about it. And the industry is just changing so much. And like you said, there's so much content being made, whether it's like Netflix, everybody is making video content and they're putting music behind it. And there's like, I guess there's a lot of like micro licenses. And now I'm seeing like these subscription, like licensing sites for, for music. And it just seems like, uh, it seems like we're in this like big shift where people are going to have to like make some moves to continue to live the way that they're living. Have you thought about stuff that you might be open to doing in the future if, if the industry changes? I mean, I guess not, I'm not talking about leaving composing, but I'm just saying like, you know, are you playing defense in case anything changes? Um, I would say library tracks are the, the, de- the backstop right okay. now. It's just kind of, because that's where, that's where the majority of composers income comes from is royalties. Right. And a lot of that is going to be like, yeah, I did that whole CW show. I did a whole season of it. And that amounted to less than 1% of my royalties, but I spent most of my year doing it. 
And it's just like, you know, I slaved away on 13 episodes writing minutes and minutes and minutes. And then when all of that added up, the show wasn't successful. Every episode played about once. So you didn't get the repeat royalties. And it just went away. And now that music is gone forever. Whereas if I write a library track 10 years ago, like it can get used by someone different every single day for 10 years and rerun. And so the return on that time investment is just huge versus, you know, spending seven months scoring 13 episodes of a show that will never see the light of day again. Like that's just gone. And so library music is sort of the defense of if I had only done that show, like there would be no royalties to show for it. Well, when talking about royalties, I'm a little unfamiliar, but it's my understanding that like the streaming world, like the Netflix, the the royalty scheme is either non-existent or very different, right? It's bad. Um, (laughs) So if you take a a Netflix project, they will try and buy out your royalties. Okay. I don't actually know the numbers. So like nobody, nobody really does. So they'll say like, this is what we estimate it will be worth. Most people say you don't have to take the deal, but they usually strongly suggest, they say, why don't we pay you X number of dollars more to not have any royalties because then we don't have to have lawyers that track it. We don't have to do the publishing. We don't have to do the contracts. And and it's really, then when you see your Netflix royalties for other shows, you're just like, they are pretty bad. Like maybe I should take those deals. Okay. The streaming royalties in general for like Amazon Prime or Netflix, like they're significantly worse than regular TV, like significantly most TV placements are, are a few dollars to a few thousands of dollars. Right. Most Netflix royalties are, are cents or tenths of cents. It's basically right so in there with music streaming. It's the same idea. Like you can, like, let's say you've got hundreds of pages of your royalty statement. When you get to the Netflix stuff, you scroll down and maybe I'll scroll 50 or 100 pages and none of them are even worth 10 cents. Like, Jesus. it's just kind of like, okay. So given that that's the landscape, sometimes you're just like, maybe I should just take the upfront fee. Yeah. You don't know. That's the gamble. But but you're right. It's bad. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to... We can't end on a it's bad note. Uh, but I do have... I have a question that I like to close with. Um, so I like to put people on the spot and ask them what their current big goal is and what is the first smallest thing you're going to do to go towards it? Um, well, as soon as COVID ends... And I have daycare again for my toddler son, then this is a really dumb goal, but it's completely authentic. I've always really wanted to score either a Hallmark or a Lifetime movie. I just think it would be hilarious. And because I just, I have this sense that I'm not going to get the no melody, we want it to be super modern note that I get on every other project. Like, I want to just be able to be a little more heartfelt and like, actually channel real emotion. Whereas there's kind of a, a movement towards everything being really cool and cinematic, but that just kind of means not playing the emotion. So the next thing that I'd like to do is try and somehow get a Hallmark or a Lifetime movie and just do it on my own. And so I went through my Facebook friends list and I was like, who do I know that can help me? And I found an editor that I used to produce movies too. A movie that I produced in 2010 uh, he was our editor in Connecticut. He now lives in Los Angeles and he is, wouldn't you know it, a post supervisor for Hallmark. And so I messaged him and we're going to chat in the new year. But I, I basically said, I can't do anything until I have daycare because 
my days are not my own at this point. But that would be the next step. That's kind of similar to why I want to do comedy. It just it's a little more heartfelt and, and real. Yeah. And it's not so ironic and detached. It's like you don't always play against the action. I wanna if somebody's sad, I wanna write sad music. And like yeah. that would be my very next step that I I don't know whether that's gonna be February or April or when, but I will reach out to that person and Hopefully, hopefully sooner than later. I did notice like a thread throughout our conversation of um, you seem to have no fear reaching out and connecting, uh, going through your Rolodex, going through Craigslist. Is is do you feel like uh, when I say networking, I don't mean like dirty Hollywood networking, like authentic networking. Is that a, like a strong point of yours or something that you've utilized to kind of progress your career, keeping solid relationships with people? Maybe that I I've never thought of it as networking, but, but I think that's because I have the the stigma that you know of just like to me quote networking as you alluded to it feels a little sleazy. Oh, word. Like what do they always say? Like Hollywood is the only place where people can die of encouragement. <laughs> um, I haven't heard that, but, but it's, it's just that whole like yeah. When they always say like the worst thing that can happen is for someone to say this is the greatest idea I've ever heard. We will be in touch, and that means you'll never hear from them <laughs> again. And so when I think of networking, like that's the negative connotation. But I think if you've actually worked with people on projects, um, I feel very fortunate that like every project I've worked on, like uh, they come back in a couple years. Some of that is that I'm willing to play ball. You know, I'm willing to write 50 minutes of spec music for your movie when you finally become a director, like I did for that guy. And like, um, yeah, I think not having an ego is, or at least acting like you don't, is really critical to just like, hey, would you be willing to demo? Like, sure, of course. Like, everyone should have to. If you want me to demo, I'll demo. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that I'm ever going to be too big for. And so that I think that approach just makes people more comfortable in working with you the next time. As they can vouch for you, they're going to feel more comfortable recommending you to someone that they know. And, and just circling back and saying, hey, man, thanks for recommending me. I'm going to do a great job, and I'm not going to embarrass you. And you're going to be really glad that you recommended me, like, because I appreciate it. Like that means something. Whereas I've been on the other end of that, not in bad ways, but where, you know, someone I kind of vaguely know say, Hey, I moved to LA. I'm looking for absolutely anything you can get me. And I'll go like, okay, there's this guy that wants me to do a star Wars ripoff. Do you want to be in touch? Sure. And then I put him in touch. And then my friend, the guy that I refer him to calls me up. He's like, Hey man, your guy was like saying it wasn't enough money and he can't get it done on time. And then like, I feel kind of like an idiot. And so I just never want to put anyone in that spot. I think it it frustrates them. It makes me look bad. And if you can just if you can just be authentic and not be one of those Hollywood types that we're referring to, I think that the people see that and it goes a long way. And yeah, and not being afraid to reach out in general. There's a I actually have an email to myself that I just saw where I was a runner in college and there's a running podcast and I listen to it every week and I was like these guys need music. And so I emailed myself to call them and say, I'll write music for free. Like just, I, I just don't want to keep listening to your podcast without music. And <laughs> I don't know what they'll say, but you know, and if I offer to do that and they have notes and revisions, like I got to do it because I'm the one that got myself into that. Right. Mess. So uh, we'll see. And I, I just think taking that approach of just like be authentic. Don't be afraid to reach out if you actually have something to offer someone because you're not asking them for a favor. You're, you're saying, I will legitimately help you. If you refer me to someone, I'll make you look good for referring. Yeah. Like you're not asking for a favor. You're either helping them or allowing them 
to help someone else. I think that that goes a long oh, way. Oh, for sure. I 100% agree with that. I think, uh, I think that's, that's amazing. Hopefully our, all of our listeners will jump back 30 seconds and listen to all that again. Cause that's, uh, that's one of the highlights. I think this was amazing. Is there, um, before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet or is there anywhere you prefer people to get in touch with you? Do you have an agent manager or anything? I have a website. It's, uh, andrewbrickjohnson.com. I actually had to just look it up to make sure I got it right. But uh, as I told you before we started recording, I've never gotten a single job from this website and I've probably only sent it to 12 people. But for certain jobs, you, you have to have a website. So I have it. If anyone's interested, they can find my contact info there and drop me a line. Awesome. Dude, this has been a ton of fun. I've, I've learned a million things about uh, about your world that I did not know. Um, I would keep going forever, but um, people people won't listen for six hours <laughs> without Joe Rogan involved. But uh, we, this was great. We should definitely uh, we should hang out um, outside of here in the in the world. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, I will. We'll grab a cup of coffee or something when the time yeah, is when right. The, when the world gets right. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Good chatting. So that's it for 2020 and progressions. Please like, subscribe, and share. It's always greatly appreciated when uh, when you spread the word. Join us over at completeproducer.net. Join in the conversation there, and we will see you next year.